All right, would you turn with me to the book of Malachi and Malachi chapter 3. We are this morning concluding not just our study in the book of Malachi, but our journey through the Minor Prophets. Uh, it's taken us about a year to do it, almost actually a year to the day uh, since we started this. Uh, and it's been an incredible journey. There's so much that uh, has come alive. These are typically books that sit at the end of the Old Testament. Unless you're studying them, um, if you're reading through as you read through the year, um, there's some strange ideas and pictures that we see. Uh, it, it's a book, or they're books that um, they're not necessarily the easiest to read, but they're great to study. As you study them, they just come alive and we see this recurring theme of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. And we see God's character come through, that God is an unchanging God. God is a God of justice and we see Israel being at the receiving end of that justice as God chastises them for their iniquity, for their disobedience, for their chasing after idols and things that don't profit. But you know, as we said last week, Malachi also speaks to us today. These aren't, none of the minor prophets speak just about Israel. Of course, there's lessons, so many lessons in there for us. Yeah, God has delivered us from our captivity also, just as God had delivered the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. But just as God, through Malachi and the other minor prophets, asks the nation of Israel, we now think that we can just live and worship in the way we please. I grew up in an Anglican church, and I'm very grateful for the experience and the opportunity God gave me to see a different style of worship. There is, and most of you will be very familiar with this, there's a, there's a reverence that exists within a lot of traditional churches that is lacking in many modern churches today. And some of that is the uh, the building. It creates a certain sense of awe and reverence and respect. But there is almost a call to holiness in those kind of environments. You go into many of those buildings and there's a tendency to not speak as loudly as you normally would. And I do think that the church by and large today has somewhat moved away from that reverence that we should have for God. God is almighty God. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And we often come to God in the way that we think is great and it's enjoyable and we worship however we want to worship. And in one sense, yes, there should be a familiarity with God. God has invited us to be part of his family. I don't expect my children to be like the Von Trapp children and to line up before dinner and me blow a whistle and then gradually go, oh, well, how do you I say that? would be quite nice. But, um, but I don't expect that of my children. I want them to be part of our home and our family and our life in every way. And yes, I want to teach them discipline and respect and those things. But God loves us and he wants us to enjoy being part of his family and coming to God and worshipping him. So it should be a, a wonderful and joyful experience. At the same time, we should understand that we are worshipping God. You know, in John's Gospel, John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to 
the Samaritan lady um, mentions there that God is looking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And there's a lot in that. You know, and the question then we can ask is, well, have we become a little bit apathetic? Have we just kind of accepted the way things we are? Do we just do things the way we've always done them? Do we really think about God or do we just do what we do and hope that God's all right with it? And this is the kind of situation that Israel had got themselves into. And Israel certainly had entered into mixed marriages with the things of the world. Literally, they had married pagan wives. They had divorced their own wives and they'd gone after these pagan wives and so on, who had led them, just as we saw with Solomon, they led them into immorality. They led them into idolatry. And of course, we look at those things, and like we do in a lot of the Old Testament, we think, well, I would never do that. And then we find ourselves doing exactly the same kind of things. It may not be the the literal thing, but in type we do the same. And how many things of this world do we find ourselves marrying, joining ourselves together with, and then trying to justify that it's okay? Of course, I'm not speaking about you this morning. It's the other Christians in the other churches. But, you know, no, it's us, isn't it? It's all of us. We're all in this situation. You know, and whatever our walk with the Lord is like, there are still things that the Lord will shine the light of his Holy Spirit on and say, that's got to change. You know, there's things now that I see in my life. And years ago, they didn't trouble me. They didn't seem a problem. And now, tiny things, the Lord shines his light upon them. I go, that can't stay. That's not right. That's not of God. He's not glorifying to God. Let me get to the real challenge that comes through this book, one of many actually, but have we withheld from God that which we should have given him? And we're going to talk about that, so I'm not going to labour that point now, we'll come on to that. It really leads on to this idea that Israel were being told here by Malachi that they should get ready for their big day. That they should turn to the Lord because their big day was coming. Now, in the context of Israel, it's the day of the Lord. It's a day of terror and tragedy for the world. And it will indeed be the time of Jacob's sorrows, but it will also be the time that Israel will finally come back to the Lord. They will acknowledge Yeshua as their saviour. And so it's a wonderful time, as well as this time of fear and foreboding. But for us, there is a big day coming. For us, it's not a day of fear. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a day when we get to see Jesus face to face. You know, I love the uh, the comments, uh, the story around Fanny Crosby. She was one of the great hymn writers. Uh, we sing a number of her hymns. And she was blind. And somebody once asked her, you know, do you wish that you'd have been able to see? And she said, no. She said, because the first face that I see with my eyes will be Jesus. And there's something lovely in that. Rather than looking at the things of the world, it's saving yourself for Jesus. And, you know, and Paul says that the church, us, you and I, should be to present ourselves as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ, unspotted by the things of the world. So we have a big day coming too. So just as Israel were being admonished here and warned here to get ready for their big day, so the same for us. Just to remind you again, it's a four-chapter book. We have the introduction, the first verse, and then God's unchanging love is expressed toward his own. And then we see the total failure of the priests, just like it is today. You know, the leaders of the church, by and large, 
have a huge amount to answer for in the way that this nation has moved away from God. I'm reading a book at the moment, which uh, I, I love history, and it's just looking at the period of time. It actually goes from Cromwell to Cromwell, and from Thomas Cromwell that served under Henry VIII to Oliver Cromwell, and talking about what the, the transition that this country went through during that time. But one thing is really clear, although there were a lot of mistakes made and issues, there were so many people that were so serious in their relationship to God. And they tried to enforce certain things to bring others in line, but they had a love for God and a love for things to be done in a godly and a biblical way. But we've got to a, a stage in history where the leaders of the church just turn away from the dictates, the commands, the statutes of scripture. And they make their own rules as to what is acceptable. It's not just the world that's redefining morality, the church is doing it and accepting it in an attempt to try and be relevant and be popular. The church is never going to be popular. But the priests, just as in Israel's time then, had failed, so today they failed. And we see with Israel that God chastises them because of their failure to value the covenants. And particularly as the Levites that are called out on this one. Because the, God had made this covenant with Levi and his descendants because at the time of the golden calf incident, you remember we talked about this briefly last week, the, the Levites stood with Moses. Moses declares, who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites stand with Moses and they fight against their brethren, standing up for God, standing up for righteousness. And of course, that's why they are chosen as a priestly tribe. And God challenges them because they've moved away from that zeal and love of him. And in chapter 2, again, we saw concluding, it speaks about Messiah's coming in judgment. And then as we're going to move into chapter 3, we see that Israel's sin is very apparent. And yet so is their future restoration. And we'll conclude with this strange situation that we're told of an Old Testament hero, if you like, who's coming back, Elijah. And we'll talk about that as we go through. As we said last time, the key phrase is you say. That recurs time and time again. In fact, 12 times we've seen it. Now, last time we went through in the first two chapters where it occurs, in the next two, chapters three and four, we see how shall we return to the Lord? So they become so absorbed into the world, forgotten their way home. And even worse, they've made this world their home. And then they'll ask, well, how have we robbed you? They're going to be charged with robbing God. And God answers in tithes and offerings in terms of that which should have been given over and consecrated to the Lord. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then you say, what, uh, sorry, what have we said about God? Well, they've been arrogant and they presume to speak about God, thinking that they knew him. Again, just like we see today. And they go on to make this thing, well, it's vain to serve God, isn't it? What's the point in serving God? You know, it's kind of, you need to be sensible. God doesn't expect you to do that. You should slow down. <laughs> Those kind of things. Well, we'll look at these things. Let's just jump in then to chapter 3 and we read. I didn't realize we don't have the font on the machine, which is why that's all messed up. Don't worry about that. <coughs> so, behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. 
even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So this declaration that someone is coming. Who is it that's coming? Well, we understand very clearly this is John the Baptist. And we know that because in the New Testament, this verse is quoted in regard to John the Baptist. We read in Matthew chapter uh, 11, verses 9 and 10. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what were you out, out in the world this to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what were you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what were you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say to you, and more than a prophet. And then we have this quote in verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now it's interesting because Jesus here quotes Malachi, this very verse that we just looked at, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and says this is the fulfillment, that John the Baptist was the one that was being spoken of who would come before the Messiah came and prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, just an interesting thing. Um, one of the curious uh, traditional things that was handed down was the idea that a number of people were going out to see John because of what he was wearing. And the suggestion is that he was wearing the very mantle of Elijah. If you remember with Elijah and Elisha, when Elijah is caught up into heaven, Elisha picks up the mantle, the cloak, as it were, of uh, Elisha, and then wears it. In fact, Elisha has specifically asked the Lord for a double portion of the blessing that was on Elijah. Now, what's fascinating, actually, if you look in Kings and you count the number of miracles recorded by Elijah, you'll find there's eight. When you count the number of miracles recorded by Elisha, there's 16 just by coincidence. But this idea was propagated, that this mantle that Elisha had worn, once Elisha died, was placed in the incense altar. Okay, so there was a number of those two specific altars. There was the brazen altar, the big altar, the where the sacrifices were offered. And then there was the incense altar, which lived inside the temple, just outside the Holy of Holies. Now, from history... Even though we have the Babylonian captivity and everything else, we know that the incense altar survived up until the time of Herod. And the incense altar was in the temple when John's father, Zechariah, was officiating as priest. And so the suggestion is that when Zechariah gets this incredible vision saying that he's going to have a child, and of course he's old, he doesn't believe, and he's struck down for this time, that he takes this mantle out from inside the incense altar and when John's old enough, he gives it to John. And John was wearing this mantle. Now again, as I can't prove that historically, it's fascinating, it's quite interesting, it may be true. There's certainly a lot of uh, rabbinical comments that suggest that there's some truth behind that. And it's, it's interesting because obviously all these people were going out to listen to John and hear what he had to say. And we are told, in fact, let's just look at this next verse in verse 13 through 15. It says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if... You will receive it. This is Elias or Elijah, which for was for to come. In other words, this is Elijah. So Jesus is saying that the one before them, John the Baptist, is Elijah. Now that may confuse us. We'll come to that in a second. 
And Jesus says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that should be a little clue because that tells you that there's a little bit more there. The rabbis refer to something called a remez. It's a hint of something deeper. And Jesus is saying, he that has ears, let him hear. Okay, listen to, to what's being said. There's an interesting point to note there, though, that all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Do you know that the Old Testament doesn't end with Malachi, it ends with John. John is the end of the prophets of the Old Testament. And then God does something new, the church. So was John the Baptist, Elijah, come again? Well, let's look at what Jesus said. Pick up from John 15 through to 19. In fact, if you read in John chapter 1, there's actually a parenthesis in verses 16 and 17 and 18. Um, there's a number of occasions in scripture where we have a parenthesis, uh, and it gets confusing if you don't understand this. You have a piece of text, something's being said, and then whoever's writing interrupts themselves to say something else, and then they get back on track. Paul does it all the time. You know, Paul will start a, 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 a thread, a, a line of uh, teaching, instruction. He then goes off on a tangent and then comes back. And sometimes it's helpful to look at where the stops, where the tangent is, and then get back onto the theme. And then you read it as a narrative and it makes a lot of sense. So nothing wrong with the way it's written. It's just the style it was written in. And here we have one in John's Gospel. So let me read it from 15 straight into 19. And we read this. John bear witness of him, Jesus, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And this is the record of John. This is the record. What, what John said that he was the one who was coming after him, was preferred before me. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Okay, so here's your answer. Jesus says that he comes as Elijah, and John's asked, This is I'm not Elijah. So do we have a contradiction? No, just hold on. And now here, Are thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Well, that should make you kind of ask a few questions. Who is that prophet? We'll come to that. John was the promised herald announcing the coming of the Messiah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Yet he was not Elijah reincarnated. Let me make that very clear. Prophecy regarding Elijah has yet to be fulfilled. The Bible, and we'll see this as we move into chapter 4 in a minute, and elsewhere, clearly states Elijah will come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord, this time of judgment that's coming on the earth. So we see a real parallel between John the Baptist and Elijah. And in one sense, we can, can treat them as the same. Both of them come heralding the Messiah is about to come. John heralds his first coming. Elijah heralds his second coming. The Jews expected both Elijah and that prophet to return before the day of the Lord. And every Passover, there's an empty chair left in Jewish homes for Elijah. Who is that prophet? Well, that prophet is a reference from Deuteronomy and is believed to be Moses himself. Moses speaks of a prophet like me will come. And so the Jews have got this idea that Moses himself would also come before 
this great and terrible day of the Lord, this day of the Lord that is spoken of throughout the Old and New Testaments. So now we have a promise that not only Elijah is to come, but we see this mentioned a number of times in the New Testament, that this prophet, who's not the Messiah, but someone other than the Messiah, other than Elijah, who seems to be, by most Jews, except to be Moses, will also come. Moses 11, Matthew 11, 11 says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, the Old Testament, as I said, concluded with John, and Jesus reveals here that God was going to do a new thing, that being the church. And the church, in many respects, superseded everything that had gone before, because Paul tells us that through the church, God was to bring together everything in Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles, all together in one family. Again, this verse, chapter 1, it just says, After my messenger, he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. All right, well, you just, just, just take note of that. Shall suddenly come to his temple. You see, this prophecy begins with the coming of John, but then effectively admits the first coming, and the whole of the church age jumps straight to the time of the second coming when Jesus comes in power and glory. So, in one sense, and certainly Jesus helps us to understand it in this way, it is a reference to John, but it's also a reference to Elijah. Because both of them, it's almost like you've got two things running simultaneously. You have one leading up to the first coming and so on, and one for the second coming. John and Elijah, both, almost if you can imagine, time being wrapped on itself, running parallel with each other. Verse 2. Who may abide the day of his coming? Speaking of the Messiah. And he shall stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like full of soap. Now, clearly we see this has to be referenced in the second coming. This isn't what happened when Jesus came the first time. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi. Of all the groups that are mentioned here, Levi is singled out because, as we said already, they were the ones highlighted last time that God had made this covenant with. And he rebuked them for breaking that covenant that they'd made with the Lord. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And here we see God promising to restore them. This is one of the most wonderful things about this book. We see this whole idea of restoration coming through. That though people had broken their agreements, their covenants with God. Though Levi had done it, Israel had done it, God restores them. Until the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years, and I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the idolaters and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord. These are all the things that the minor prophets that we've been going through keep calling out the way that injustice had crept into the land, and God had brought the Babylonian captivity and the judgment upon them, and for the northern kingdom first, it was the Assyrians that had conquered them. God had allowed all of this to happen because of the way they treat each other, because of this oppression, because of this ungodliness and chasing after idols. And God is saying, I'm going to bring all of that to an end. And righteousness is going to prevail 
throughout the whole earth. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Is not not one of the greatest verses in the Bible? God says that I am the Lord. There is no other God. There is no one greater than God. And then this statement, I change not. In the book of Hebrews, we're told God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says, I change not. God doesn't get to a point where he changes his mind. God, unlike us, doesn't get tired and go, I can't do this anymore. Now God changes not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why is it that Jacob is not consumed? It's because God doesn't change. It's because of God's faithfulness that Israel are not destroyed for their iniquity. And we should rejoice in that fact because it's exactly the same for us. It's because of God's faithfulness that we are not destroyed for our iniquity also. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. We don't take the glory, the credit. God gets the glory because it is all about him. And in the book of... <coughs> I can't read that one. Is that you trying to have there? I can't see my slides now. I think it's Psalms, isn't it? Yes, it's Psalms, I think. Um, For my name's sake will I defer my anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. This is God speaking to Israel. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction, and note verse 11, for my own sake, even my own sake, will I do it? For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory to another. God speaking very, very clearly. It's actually Isaiah. Sorry, I don't remember where it comes from now. It's Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9 through 11. God making it very clear that it's because of his own reputation, because of who he is, that he will not destroy Israel. And he'll not destroy us if we put our faith and trust in him. Back into Malachi, Three, picking up verse seven. Even from the days of your fathers, ye have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. And this is where we start to get these questions. But you say, where shall we return? Will a man rob God? So, kind of the question they're asking is, God's saying you should return to me, and they go, well, what do you mean return to you? You know, you're implying that we've we've left you, we've taken something away. We've not left. And they say, will a man rob God? And they're almost incredulous that this question is being put to them. And God says, yet you have robbed me. But you say, where have we robbed thee? And the response is, in tithes and offerings. And you can suddenly imagine the silence as the leaders of the nation, all the way from the top down to the members of the the nation, every individual, suddenly realize that this is what they are guilty of. See, God says, return. Israel says, what do you mean, return? And God says, because you have robbed me. And the example he gives is in tithes and in offerings. Now, this is a much bigger picture than maybe you see on the surface. It's all about our love for God. That's the real issue here. It had been because Israel had robbed God of every seventh year 
that they brought upon themselves the 70-year Babylonian captivity. That's explained in Second Chronicles 36. It had been because they offered sacrifices to idols that God had brought judgment upon them. They'd taken that which was God and should have been intended for God, the worship they should have been bringing, the offerings, the sacrifices, and they'd been giving them to idols. God says, you've been taking that which was mine and giving it to something else. And they become so desensitized to the things of God, they couldn't see the offense that they had caused to God. Now, typically with the tithe, 10% was given. And even to this day, when we talk about tithing, what people generally mean is giving something to church, to the ministry of the church, or to some other ministry, however you feel you want to give. And typically 10% is what's put forward as a tithe. And the reason for that is, of course, that's what's stated in the Torah. Notice that it was all their increase. By the way, let me just make this comment. That some Christians think that if we tithe 10%, that's it, I've done my bit. Well, I've got news for you, we're not under the law. You don't have to tithe 10%. You have to give 100%. Because we have been bought at a price. We're to honour God with our body and our spirits. We belong to him. Everything we have is his. All things come from him and of his own we should give to him. No longer is it we can give God a tenth and that's it, that's done. That's it, we can get about and do what we want to do now. As Christians, we owe him everything. Let me just make that very clear. Even this whole 10% thing, a lot of people misunderstand it. They think, well, 10%, if I just give 10%, I'm done. But the 10% was very broad. There was the tithe of the land. There was the tithe of the herd, the tithe of the flock. There was the tithe of the corn, tithe of the seed, or the produce from the land, tithe of the wine, tithe of oil. But notice the statement we have in Deuteronomy 14.23. This is really the whole point of tithing, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. God says, I want you to do this because I want you to trust me. We're going to see this expressed in Malachi in a moment. The whole purpose of tithing is really God saying, do you trust me? You may look at your own situation and think, I can't afford to do this. And by the way, we'll come on to this in a moment. We're not just talking about money. Often we think tithe, we think money. No, it's not. You've just seen already here. There's a lot of things that were given in tithe. But it implies... Everything, our resources, our time, our affections, everything. Deuteronomy 14.28 says, At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shall lay it up within thy gates. So with Israel, the tithe was a very broad thing. It's a big subject if you want to get into it. I've got a really thick book at home that goes through all the tithes and offerings of Israel. I'll be honest, I've not read it because it really is quite a big book. And it just goes through detail after detail after detail of what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to give. Look at what Jesus says though regarding the subject in the New Testament. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the others undone. So he doesn't say you shouldn't tithe, but he's saying you've just given me, but I don't have your hearts. And this starts to really get to the crux of the matter for us today. It's not just about giving 10% of whatever you feel is right for you. 
It's about giving your heart to the Lord, giving everything. As I say, no longer it's 10%, it's now 100%. Notice why he says to Luke, or Luke tells us, Luke 11.42, But woe unto you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue, all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These all you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Again, the same idea. You pass over judgment. See, God isn't just looking for people to bring some sort of sacrifice and leave it at the altar and walk away. God is looking for your hearts in this. I was listening to a commentary and it made me chuckle, but I share it with you because it might kind of really drive home the point. A. Vernon McGee, some of you will be aware of a great Bible commentator now at Home of the Lord. He said this once. He said, at the end of the service, rather than giving the benediction, I want to cry out, stop, thief! As he saw people leaving the church that hadn't come to bring their gift to the altar. And again, we're not just talking financially. That may be applicable. But let me ask you this. Do you come to church to take or to give? When you leave church on a Sunday, have you brought your offering to the throne? You see, when we come together, if, if, if this was a tabernacle and you'd come to the tabernacle or the temple in Israel, you wouldn't have come empty-handed. Nor would you have come bringing whatever you could find. You'd have come and you'd have had to bring the best of your produce. If you were bringing a lamb, it would have to be without spot and without blemish. When we come to worship the Lord now, do we come to church just to have a nice time and be fed and go home and think, well, that was nice, I enjoyed that this morning? Or do you come and thinking, Lord, how can I serve you here this morning? What can I do? And it could be something so simple, so small, that you think is insignificant. But let me just tell you this. This morning we had some people that turned up earlier. And that difference it made, astonishing. Just that little bit makes a big difference. That's not the only way you can serve. It's a way. And it's appreciated. Very much appreciated. But let me just challenge you again. That when you come on Sunday morning, you should all come with that mindset of, how can I worship God? What can I bring to the altar? My time, my prayers, my abilities, my practical help or support. All of those are part of our worship to God. Or have you found that bringing an offering is just too costly for you? There's a law that's talked about in business, a Pareto law. It's kind of the 80-20 rule. And typically it's the idea that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. So very few people are doing the majority of the work. And that's just in the, the secular world. But it applies in church too very much. But it shouldn't apply in church. This should be the one place that that's different. This should be the one place where everybody is wanting to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Years ago, when I was uh, playing uh, drumming in the band I was in, there was a, another band that we knew. And it really struck me that when they played, we did a number of uh, 
the gigs together at the time. They were a Christian band. They would always help each other carry everything. Now, it wasn't that they weren't strong. They were, they were you know, big lads and they could carry the stuff. A lot of them on their own wouldn't be a problem. But they just worked together. And it really struck me. They had a love for each other and they just wanted to help each other. And that really stuck with me. Again, Galatians 6 2, that one of the very first sermons I ever preached at this church was that we should bear each other's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ. It's such a simple thing. And it's such a wonderful thing when we help each other, when we support each other, when we're there for each other. And don't get me wrong, as a fellowship, I'm hugely proud and blessed to see so much of that already going on. But we should always be looking for opportunities. To help each other in any way we can. To serve each other. Because you know that is all bringing our offering before the altar. Back into Malachi we read this. You are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. And I can't read the last line because the text is over there. Bear with me. Okay. And pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Okay. This is this is this statement. We're probably very familiar with this. Firstly, God says, you're cursed with a curse, you have robbed me. We're going to see this statement just, just expounded here. And this is a challenge to bring to God that which he's due, that which he's worthy of. And then God asks this question, says to them, bring your tithes. You know, start to do this, start to give to me. And see if I won't bless you overwhelmingly for it. Now, some cite this as a unique dare on God's part. Yet this promise of blessing for obedience is echoed throughout Scripture. Some say, oh, we shouldn't tempt God. This isn't tempting God. This isn't tempting God. This is God just saying, I've made you promises already. Just look at some of these. This is from largely from Psalms, but Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. God's saying, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly and you'll be blessed. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no guile. Another promise of a blessing. Psalm 34, verse 8. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. Psalm 84, verse 12. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. And by the way, this applies to male or female. Psalm 112, verse 1. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments. If we do these things, there's blessings promised. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. In the second verse, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. God has already made this promise. Malachi isn't the only place this appears. It's throughout the Bible. If we walk with the Lord, if we seek him, there will be blessing. Now there's some simple spiritual laws that we see at work here. In Galatians chapter 6, we're told that you'll reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, guess what? You're going to reap everlasting life. You can't outgive God. 
And obedience brings blessing. But in the same way, disobedience brings chastisement. You just go see Deuteronomy 28. You see that. Just picking up again in Malachi verse 11 of chapter 3. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Notice what God says. All the things that were robbing us of things... God is going to rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And verse 12 goes on, And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome uh, land, saith the Lord of hosts. Back in Haggai, we saw this challenge Chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed or panelled houses? And this house lay waste. You know, the, the wood that they'd used to panel their own houses had been brought down um, from um, uh, Tyre and Sidon up the coast. Um, and they'd been brought down to be used in the temple. And rather than being used in the temple, these cedars from Lebanon and so on that, uh, up north of Israel, this had been used in individuals' homes because they didn't get around to building the temple for 19 years, as you know. And Haggai steps onto the scene and challenges them. You know, you've been building your own house. What about the Lord's house? You know, I think this is a challenge for us right now. It's a challenge for every church all the time. But this same challenge. Are we building the Lord's house? Are we seeking what we can do for the Lord's house? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. Probably all of us feel like that at times. But look at the, 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 the promise God makes. You looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is waste and you run every man unto his own house. God's really challenging us as to where our priorities are. You know, in the light of eternity, none of us are going to rejoice in the things that we acquired or the things that we did on earth. None of that will matter. For people around us, as we're caught up at the time of the rapture, we're told will be our crown of rejoicing. Seeing lives that we've influenced, that as a church we've been at an impact. You know, the teaching that we teach here goes online and people around the world listen to this. People that you and I will probably never get to meet this side of eternity. And yet, those that are here that are giving and supporting the work of this ministry are making that happen. There are people's lives that are being touched and changed. As God engineers, you don't get to see. I don't get to see. Verse 13, Malachi goes on and says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? In other words, they're trying to argue, that, you know, does it really matter? Does it make any difference? Or oh, so much of the church is like that today. Again, just getting into apathy, does it really matter? Is, is it important? You know, we see other churches that go about their business and they don't really care for scripture, they don't teach scripture. They seem to be okay and doing all right. Does it really matter? Yeah, it does matter. Verse 15, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. 
Now that may be the way we perceive things to be at times, but that's not really how they are. 16, then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. So this is, we, we've just seen the statement by one group, and now we get this, the, the remnant, if you like, that really seek God. Then they that feared the Lord, that's what it comes back to, that reverence, spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened. The Lord listened to them and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Remember last week we talked about Elijah, who had thought he was the only one of the Lord's prophets left. And God says, no, I've reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. Same thing here. People thought they were on their own, that God wasn't hearing. And God says, no, I listened. I heard. Those of you who are zealous, those of you who cared for my name, who cared for the church, for what God is doing. Verse 17, notice this, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. It's, it's just, just how beautiful is that? That God is saying to those that really truly want to give to him, that seek him, that put him first, God says, they shall be mine. Just as the Levites were chosen, and God said, they will be mine, and they will minister to me. God says now to each one of us, if we seek him and put him first, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. What a lovely picture. In the New Testament, we have that parable of the field where it is buried a pearl. And the man, the picture of Jesus Christ, gives him everything he has to purchase the field that he may take up the pearl. Interestingly, pearls are not a Jewish thing. They're not kosher. They come from oysters, of course. And what happens with a pearl? Well, a pearl, first of all, is formed by secretion inside the oyster. It's formed by irritation, just like the church. But it's taken from its place to become an item of adornment, just like the church. We are going to be a jewel, as it were, for the Lord. And I will spare them as a man spared his own son that served him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. I just, just noticed that little bit at the bottom there, a powerful statement. Then shall you return and discern, this is Jesus effectively, between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Wow, everything's being split into two groups amongst God's people, those that serve him and those that serve not. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told there of the beamer seats, the judgment seat of Christ. We're almost, we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Break his beam seat, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. At the judgment seat of Christ, everything is divided into two groups. Knowing, therefore, Paul says, the terror of the Lord. Do we fear the Lord? We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. First Corinthians 3 also speaks of that time when we will be caught up before the throne, and every man's work will be judged. Because it's going to be tried as by fire. And there'll be gold, there'll be silver, there'll be precious stones, wood, hay and straw. Talking about the different types of things we've done. If we have sown to the flesh, to the world and so on, it's the wood, hay and straw. Before fire, it just burns up. There's nothing. But if 
We have given everything, given our lives for the things of God, for the church, for that which is of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the church is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not my church, it's not Calvary Chapel, it's not any denomination, it's Jesus Christ's church that he said he would build. Well, if we've given ourselves to those things, then it's spoken of as being gold, silver, and precious stones. The way it goes through a fire is purified. Chapter 4, just a few verses. But wow, what a few verses these are. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that, that do wickedly shall be stubble, and that day that cometh shall, be, shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, uh, that shall leave them neither root nor branch. This idea of fire and burning are constant idioms that are used of the coming tribulation. Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace, a great type of the tribulation. These, The world is caused to bow down to this image that will be set up, just as Antichrist will do, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. But these Jews refuse to bow down and they're put in this fiery furnace. But what happens, they are preserved through that time. And there's one that stands with them in the fire. But of course there is an individual that's missing from that scene and that's Daniel himself. Where's Daniel? Well, I don't believe that Daniel would have bowed down, nor do I believe that Daniel would have been exempted on that day. So the most likely thing is that Daniel was out on some affair of state. He was such an important man in the land. And maybe this is what led to this occasion. As Daniel goes away on some other business, the enemies of the... Daniel and his friends use this as an opportunity. So Daniel removed, maybe a picture of the church. Daniel was also called the beloved, just as John was. Just as the church is. Daniel removed and the Jews preserved through this time of fire. Matthew 13 also speaks of this time of fire as the punishment for those that reject. There's two groups in Matthew 13, those effectively who are gathered into his barn and those that go into the fire. Reread that. I don't think he's talking about hell. I think he's talking about the tribulation. And yes, hell will obviously follow on. But I think he's talking those references all speak of the tribulation. Verse 2 then goes on and says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Verse 3 goes on, And you shall tread down the wicked. They shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. In that day that I, uh, in that day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts, remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him, In Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Reference made to Horeb, the mountain of the law, Mount Sinai, you and I. Interestingly, Malachi reminds us here of Moses who gave the law. This is the first of two significant Old Testament characters that Malachi will now reference because in the very next verse we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now there is a curious relationship that exists between Moses and Elijah. Together they represent the counsel of God to mankind. The law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. 
Something to be established, it requires two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that the mouth of two witnesses or the mouth of three witnesses show the matter be established. But it had to be at least two witnesses for something to be taken seriously in a legal setting. Interestingly, in the New Testament, of course, we come across Moses and Elijah. And we find them on this Mount of Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 3. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So the disciples are looking on. We've got Peter, we've got John, we've got James, and then we've got Jesus. And Moses and Elijah appear on this mount speaking with Jesus. Interestingly, when we look in Luke's account, and behold, they're talking with him two men. Now, notice that Luke is a doctor. He's not some uh, amateur at this. He states clearly two men, and he identifies them as Moses and Elijah, who appear in glory. But notice the conversation here and spoke of his decease. The reason that Moses and Elijah are called this meeting was to talk about what was about to happen in Jerusalem when Jesus was going to be crucified. Why? Why did Jesus have this audience, this conversation with Moses and Elijah? Verse 32 says, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake they saw his glory uh, and the two men that stood with him. witness and testified the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus. We've already said you need two witnesses to establish something. God has already said he would not leave himself without a witness back in Isaiah. Who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus? We all take it as a matter of fact and Paul has no doubt about the resurrection being a historical event. Who witnessed it? Well, it's interesting, when we go to Luke 24, verse 4, at the garden tomb, and it came to pass, as they were much perplexed, this is the disciples there about, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Who were those two men? Well, we're not told. So this is a little bit of conjecture, but it seems very probable to me, given the fact that Moses and Elijah had just been called a couple of weeks before this, to talk about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus clearly had a mission for them. And then we see two men in shining garments at the garden tomb on the morning of the resurrection. I suspect it was Moses and Elijah. And also at the ascension, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, the disciples as he went up, behold, two men stood there before them in white apparel. Who were those two men? Not angels, two men. I suggest again it may well be Moses and Elijah. You're familiar probably in the account in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich rich man has everything he wants in his life but cares nothing for God. He dies. Lazarus is this beggar that sits at his door. Eventually he dies as well. And both of them are in Hades but they're separated by this great gulf. And the rich man, then he prayed, I pray that therefore, Father, that I would send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Interesting what they are told here, or what this man is told. They've got Moses and the prophets, they've got the law and the prophets. Those are the witnesses that God has given. The law convicts men of sin. Prophets convince men intellectually. All men are without excuse if they reject God. So let me just ask you a question. Then. What is significant about Moses and Elijah? Well, I would just suggest that in the manner of their deaths is certainly one thing we can consider. 
Just very briefly, I have taught, and many pastors I know teach and believe, and it's not a big thing, that this transfiguration event took place on Mount Hermon in northern Israel, because we're told that after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up to a high mountain, and Hermon is probably the highest mountain in the region. Last time I went through this, I saw something I'd never seen before. And I've now revised my thinking. And it's not a big deal, but I just think it's fascinating. I think it was actually Mount Nebo, which is in southern Israel, where this transfiguration took place. Why is that significant? Well, firstly, is it possible? We're told after six days, Jesus takes them. Well, we know they were up in Caesarea Philippi. And you can see that dotted blue line coming all the way down to Mount Nebo. Guess what? That's a six-day journey. Well, that's interesting in and of itself. Most of that walk is either downhill to start with or flat. It's only the last leg of the journey that's uphill. You can see on the chart at the top there. And it's on this mountain that we have this conversation overlooking Jerusalem. Matt Nebo looks across to Jerusalem. Interesting. The subject was what was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem, and that's where they are standing looking across the Dead Sea towards Jerusalem. The other fascinating thing is, and this is what I found last time in Mark chapter 9, verse 30-33, that when they leave this mountain, they pass through Galilee and come to Capernaum. Can't do that if you're Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's above, so they wouldn't pass through Galilee. They'd have to come down and then go back up, which would make no sense. But this way would make complete sense. So they travel up from the south. Well, first of all, they come down to Mount Nebo, and then they travel up, go past the Galilee, and come to Capernaum. That makes total sense of the scripture. It's not a big deal. I just think it's fascinating, because both Moses and Elijah ended their time on earth at Mount Nebo. They go up to heaven from here, effectively. Elijah, we know, was raptured. Moses was buried by the Lord. That's all we have recorded in the text, because no one found his body. Both men are called out of retirement to beat Jesus on the same mountain overlooking Jerusalem. Don't you think that's fascinating? In Second Kings, I won't need to read it all now, but you have the account of the rapture of Elijah. In Deuteronomy, you have the account of the burial of Moses. What's fascinating about the burial of Moses is that nobody found his body. Nobody knew where his body is. So much so, when we get to Jude, we find that Satan has an argument with the archangel Michael about the body of Moses. Why? Well, it may have just been that he wanted to find the body and make it some sort of shrine and kind of, you know, get people on some idolatry thing. And I suggest there could be something more to that. I'll leave you to, to ponder it. I just wonder whether Moses also was actually raptured in the same way that Elijah was taken home. Because we see them both appearing in exactly the same physical form on Mount of Transfiguration. And then we see them again seemingly in the book of Revelation. We're told there, I will give power unto my two witnesses. Two witnesses. Interesting, isn't it? The law of the prophets. And they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. Well, that's exactly what Elijah did. And devour his enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner killed. These have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Well, that period will be three and a half years, and that's exactly the period of time that Elijah stopped the rain in Israel in the days of King Ahab. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses. And to smite the earth with all plagues. Who did that? Moses. 
So it seems to me quite conclusive that these two characters God has a plan for. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we see them both referenced in the book of Malachi, which is speaking of what is going to come. And certainly Elijah is foretold as coming, and the allusion is also there to Moses. I think both of these individuals will come and will minister the earth. What's going to happen is after they've done these miracles for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they're going to be put to death. They're going to be raised from the dead and they're going to be caught up to heaven and be raptured again. So on. Malachi again, the last two verses. So I behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet for the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. And it may well be that the ministry of Moses and Elijah during the first three and a half years of the tribulation will convert the 144,000 Jews that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. Why do I say that? Well, because those Jews weren't part of the church, otherwise they'd have been raptured. So they come to faith after the church has been taken, after the tribulation begins. And as Moses and Elijah's ministry runs for that first three and a half years, it would seem to be that as these two prophets of old stand there in Jerusalem, proclaiming the truth that 144,000 Jews are converted, and they then carry this baton around the world, preaching to the world. And there'll be a witness to the whole world. As I said, Elijah and Moses will be killed, resurrected, and then raptured. And that brings us to the end of the book of Malachi. It brings us to the end of the Old Testament. But it leaves it on kind of like, you know, what you watch a, a, a film or a program or whatever, and there's that cliffhanger ending. And that's kind of like where the Old Testament stops. It's looking forward to all that is going to come. And we can continue from here. But let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning for this time of study to be able to look at these things. Father, to be reminded that you want us to bring offerings before you, not out of a sense of duty, but out of love. Not because we have to or we ought to, but because we want to. Oh, and Lord, you promise us blessing when we do. But Lord, the greatest blessing is knowing that we can serve you and that we can bring sacrifices of praise before your throne in whichever way you lay upon our hearts to do. But Lord, may we be open to you and allow you to lead us. May you be first in our life. Father, we thank you for these prophetic scriptures that speak of all that is coming. The Lord, remind us of your covenant with your people Israel, that your plan is in full motion and we will see these events take place in the days and months and years ahead. Oh, Father, we have that joy of being called yours, that you have chosen us and that you will, as a jewel, Take us from this place, from this earth, and you will bring us home to heaven, where we will be counted as your bride. Oh Lord, what a privilege each one of us has in knowing and serving you. Thank you for these things. Thank you, Lord, for these minor prophets, these men, Lord, who devoted their lives to serving you. Father, may we do just the same. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.